Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Paddy Allen, who is Head of Operational Capital Markets at Colliers, which is a leading international property service and investment management business. He was previously a partner at Cushman & Wakefield, and alongside this, founded his own advisory business. So he knows what he's talking about. Welcome to the podcast, Paddy, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see whether I know what I'm talking about very shortly. We'll find out. Exactly. So there's a huge amount that we could discuss. And I'm really keen to focus on overall the future of real estate and strategic outlook for investors, because you clearly have a lot of insight to share on this. But before we go on, okay, operational capital markets sounds very interesting, but the reality is not everyone will actually understand what that means. So I wondered if, first of all, you could just explain what is operational capital markets in words my mum would understand. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we tried to think of a better title, but we couldn't come up with one when I joined. But uh, ultimately, operational capital markets is anything that is a real estate investment that is backed by an operational business rather than a lease. At the moment, that is, it tends to be beds. So student accommodation, built to rent, co-living, senior housing. But I'm sure as probably the 2020s go on may well be other sectors as well, but predominantly it's focusing on beds where you know, the value of the investment is being driven by an operational business rather than a lease in place to a particular occupier. Got it. Okay. And I guess it would be really interesting to dig into what's actually happening across that market. So beds, can you talk me through what the big trends are that have been affecting investors and operators over the beds subsectors that you focus on over the last couple of years? Yeah, so uh, it depends how long. How long have we got? We've got a couple of hours. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's, all, there's all sorts going on. I think if I look at the customer side of things first, I think you know what we've seen over the last ten years is some big sort of demographic shifts, but also different sort of trends within those demographics as well. So we're coming out of a demographic dip for eighteen-year-olds in the UK and across a lot of Western Europe at the moment, which means we've got, we're going to have more 18-year-olds over the next seven to eight years coming through. So the birth rate was quite low sort of 20 odd years ago, and it's now starting to pick up. So, you know, we're seeing a lot more 18-year-olds who are going to be students and we'll be looking at, you know, going into student accommodation. We're seeing a lot more mobility around the world, so international mobility. So, you know, there is, I suppose, People are traveling a hell of a lot more, you know, take the last year out of things. But we're seeing there's a lot more demand for travel and it's easier and cheaper than it ever has been. Now, whether that will persist into the future, into the short term, I'm not sure. But I can imagine in a post-COVID world, once everything is sort of settled, we'll probably see, you know, that level of mobility coming back, I'd argue. Yeah, we're also seeing a significant demand for education and jobs and people willing to move for those as well. So a lot more migration, which is boosting demand for good quality housing in urban centres. We have a housing shortage across most European cities. You know, probably in the UK, we read about it the most, but, you know, we're just not building enough houses. So you couple, put all of those together you know, increasing demand, 
supply not increasing or and increasing the obsolete supply as well. A kind of changing level of demand as well, where people are often looking for experience over ownership, flexibility, transparency, in which you know typically you don't get in the normal kind of getting onto the property ladder. You know, we've seen people getting onto the property ladder later which I think is partly driven by affordability, but it's also driven by lifestyle as much as anything. I think people are are settling later um, and they want that experience and flexibility in their early life. So we're seeing more verticals in the residential kind of journey appearing. So whether that's purpose-built student, co-living, sharing flats with friends, sharing flats with strangers, you know, that's a lot more the norm for today's sort of generation, which is 20 to 35 than it ever has been. If I flip it onto what's going on in the investment world, I guess a lot of investors are seeing that they are underweight, uh, non-cyclical investments in real estate. And what that means in kind of terms both of our mums would understand is is a lot of investments are positively correlated with wider economic movements. So, you know, as markets go up, the value of their investments go up and as markets go down, the value of their investments go down. Residential real estate is essentially non-correlated to wider macroeconomic movements. So it just kind of plods along, which a lot of us wouldn't believe. But actually, if you look at a lot of the data in terms of performance, it tends to just sort of plod along. And we've certainly seen that over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. In fact, we, you know, in the UK and house prices, we've seen that probably outperform. But if you look at kind of the global markets and if you look at rents, rents probably the int- more interesting bit to look at rather than prices. Rents have just kind of ticked up over the last sort of 10 to 15 years in most places. There was a little bit of flattening in the GFC, but ultimately it's just kind of ticked up. And that's what a lot of investors are looking for. It's kind of investments that are pretty boring, to be honest, and just act as a bit of a proxy for inflation. So they're not looking to massively outperform the market. They just don't want to underperform. And being exposed to residential asset classes allows them to do that. The income profile is not correlated to wider economic movements. People still pay their rent, even in times of recession. And that's the thesis of it, really. You know, capital values might go up and down in those periods. You might see less growth in recessionary times. But in terms of the actual income profile side of it, it's not correlated to wider economic movements. So ultimately, a lot of investors you know, pension funds, insurance companies, all of those big institutional investors are underweight, those kind of investments. You know, they've been heavily exposed to offices and rent retail and things like that, which, you know, have seen a lot, it's quite high volatility. And the volatility in the residential sector in comparison is relatively low. So we're seeing a lot more capital being put into that because they want to grow into those sectors. And we're seeing increasing demand. The bit that's not keeping up is supply. <laughs> that's, that's our challenge, basically. Yeah. Super interesting. And actually, before this call, we were talking a bit about how capital actually is being allocated. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, what the different options are for investors and whether capital is going into the right kind of strategies. I suppose if you were in charge of one of those pots of money that you just described, where would you be putting it? Great question. It would really depend on what I was trying to achieve. I'm a big advocate of sort of scale, but quite boring returns. I'm kind of a a safe investor. I'm not one of those people who go with the hype and are always trying to sort of outperform markets. I kind of like the idea of doing something which is safe. And I suppose I buy into the idea of compound interest, really, (laughs) Um, you know, which is the kind of thesis of long-term investing. So, you know, where I think 
we should be focusing is on customer markets which are undersupplied. So big customer markets that are undersupplied. And for me in the UK, that is mid-market family housing in suburban areas. That's where real people live and real people can't find houses rather than you know, going after digital nomads who live in London or Manchester and want some kind of cool, funky space, you know, or people who want to live in micro apartments or things like that, which I think is, there's all a, there is a place for that. But, you know, I think that the undersupplied part of the market is probably the most boring, but the biggest opportunity, which is that kind of, you know, family housing for local people in good suburban areas at a price that makes sense to them. Yeah. Great answer, um, man of my own heart. So, and just sort of going back to that risk and return point that you made around, you know, wanting quite a relatively safe investment. I guess it would be interesting to explore what the most important drivers will be in the wider subsectors that you focus on of risk and return over the next couple of years, next say three to five years. What do you think will be the things that drive risk and reward there? I think in the residential sector, it's mainly construction and politics are the big risks. You know, I think from a customer standpoint, I think we're relatively dull, actually, and there isn't too much risk. I mean, the, the risk from a customer perspective is that, you know, you get, we go into a recessionary period and there is prolonged unemployment and things like that. But, you know, taking that, that out of it, I think in terms of the sector itself, you know, the main risks and barriers are construction costs, inflation, you know, is a big, big part of it and the increase in cost of development and making sure that developments are feasible. So, you know, taking that into account, you know, the two main drivers of that are land prices and construction costs. You know, we've seen both increase, you know, fairly considerably over the last few years. So, you know, that's one of the big risks. And then, and really, you know, the political risks are are the ones which are, are also huge barriers. So, you know, I guess the, it ultimately our planning system, and I'm no planning expert, and it, it's an incredibly labyrinthian world, which I won't take credit for that word. I heard somebody describe it as that the other day, and I just thought that was exactly how it is. And it's not a homogenous sort of system across different boroughs and councils. Everyone kind of has their own local plan that they implement in different ways, which means that you can't really scale up a good idea geographically. You've got to kind of really focus in on that particular area and that council. So, you know, the inadequacies, I suppose, in our planning system mean that, you know, ultimately, developments that should take you know a short amount of time can often take a longer amount of time and the right stuff doesn't get built and the wrong stuff does so you know that's a real massive generalization but i think you know it, it is a huge risk and you know i look at capital looking to invest in the sector and it's the one thing that they hate is planning risk you know they capital over the years has got a lot more comfortable with development risk you know and who's a good developer how to be a good developer but the one thing they still lack transparency on and feel very exposed to is planning risk. So, you know, that is, I think, you know, the planning system is probably the biggest, <laughs> the biggest risk to us over the, in the next few years and beyond. Yeah. And earlier, we talked a bit about the shift of institutional investment into the private rental sector generally. And I suppose that difference between, you know, putting money into build to rent schemes targeted at wealthy young professionals, like the digital nomads we talked about earlier or co-living schemes, but also then at the other end of the scale, you've got that single family housing, which is clearly a big opportunity that's untapped or undertapped, as it were. What do you see being the big risks and issues in 
let's say, institutional investment into the private rental sector, other than the one you mentioned around unemployment, potential for unemployment going forward in a recessionary period? Yeah, I think the big risk for going in the private rental sector is, is getting the wrong target customer and building the wrong product for a wrong t- customer group. That's the biggest risk, is that thinking that customers want a certain product and they actually don't or thinking they may behave in a certain way and they actually don't that ultimately is some of the biggest risks that we see and sometimes i think in the early stages of kind of investing the tail can wag the dog a little bit we make certain investments work on paper because that's what we want to see from a capital perspective but we probably don't look through the lens of what does the customer actually want and the tenant want i use the word customer like really purposefully there because they're not just tenants anymore, it's their customers. A lot of tenants expect a level of service. Now, that level of service doesn't necessarily have to be like being in the four seasons, but what they do expect is some level of communication and reactivity when things go wrong, whether they're renting something that is a mid-market rental product that has no frills on it, or they're renting a beautiful high-end apartment with you know amazing concierge services there's still an expectation that there is a level of service and ultimately for us you know and the investors are running operational businesses so you have to think about your tenants as customers and so i think you know that's a real mind shift from the way that our traditional real estate relationships have been built where you know i'm landlord you're a tenant you know here's a contract if you break contract i come after you type thing you know it's a lot more softly softly now in that sense, but you can also drive a premium through that if that's what the customer market wants and if that customer market is big enough. I think if we look at the, you know, I mentioned it before in terms of just how people are changing and how people are looking sometimes for experience over ownership or they're looking for more, you know, a higher service or more amenities and things like that. That's definitely a change. And there, there are a lot of opportunities where people are moving away from the norms. So, you know, whether it's young people or whether it's even people in their sort of later life, I think there are huge opportunities in senior accommodation. We don't have communities that are, you know, are really kind of fit for purpose for people in their later years who, you know, most sort of 65, 70 year old plus people are not. I've always called them kind of healthy and wealthy. They don't need to go into a care home, but they want to be in places that are fun, but that kind of that will also look after them. And, you know, especially in a world now where we're trying to combat loneliness, you know, community is a really big part of it. And probably before that hasn't been a huge thought process when people have been buying a a house, it kind of it's kind of happens afterwards. But actually now it's a really I think for a lot of groups, it's a big consideration is, you know, what community am I buying into? Because, you know, we're trying to combat those kind of social issues. So that essentially is presenting quite a lot of opportunities, really. I think the question for us is. You know, how scalable are those opportunities? How big are they? You know, and how can we deliver them in a way that makes sense to everyone? You've said so much in that answer. <laughs> don't know where to start. That's really, really interesting. And one of the things that we've talked about before and that you kind of raised there, which does make me chuckle, is that whole difference between what people say they are willing to pay for and what they're actually willing to pay for. And I sometimes wonder whether people who are making big institutional investment decisions should have the experience of renting one of their properties before (laughs) and really understand it. Because there is still, firstly, quite a difference in the type of person who's making investment or operator decisions and the customer, to your point. 
but also yeah. maybe a lack of empathy and a lack of understanding. And I've sat on panels with people who make important decisions, but don't at all understand millennials who they're making big decisions around. <laughs> and it's really interesting because market research doesn't necessarily tell you the answer. People tell you what they like the idea of, but they don't tell you what they're actually willing to pay for. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think, you know, I pick up on that point you made, you said there about lack of empathy. Yeah, it's definitely a big thing. And that's not just across real estate and other, you know, I'm lucky enough to sort of worked in tech as well. And, you know, sometimes I guess a lack of diversity at the investment committee level often sort of leads to some of these opportunities falling into the bin, essentially, because there aren't enough people at the gatekeeper level who really kind of understand how the customer market is going to behave. And they think it will behave in one way because that's what they know, or that's what they think it will do, but actually they don't necessarily test it. I mean, I was talking, I had a really great conversation with an MD of a platform during the week, and we were kind of riffing about customers and understanding our customers better. And we were talking about the benefit of the kind of, you know, things like undercover boss. Yeah, exactly. uh, floor and stuff like that. I and mean, we were just saying, you know, how important it is to understand, you know, that's the only way you get to really understand your business and your customers is if you spent time, you know, on the front desk or you spent time cleaning the corridors or, you know, tending to the gardens and just building the relationship with people and seeing how they actually use your properties. Just turning up at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday and hanging around for 15 minutes is probably not the best way to get an idea of how a property has been used. You know, it takes time and understanding the customer and doing it in a way that I'm big on trying to create sort of feedback loops through the customers. And that isn't just by making them do a survey and emailing them. It's actually by, you know, spending time with them. And, you know, I think that's really important, you know, and, and, and caring and ultimately empathizing. So it comes back to that empathy point. Yeah, I think it does. And so just touching on your point about technology then. So you've been involved with a couple of technology businesses and, and different technologies. And I personally think basically every real estate investor or real estate business that expects to be around in, let's say, five to 10 years, basically needs to be using technology to their advantage. And I think there's yes. huge amounts of opportunity in this space. And there's also a huge amount of investment in the prop tech space. In your experience, what technologies do you think are the most exciting for the areas of real estate that you focus on? Mm. So I'm slightly biased because I... I co-founded a business called Acasa about seven or eight years ago, which was focused on trying to simplify finances in shared accommodation. And I guess one of the reasons we started that business was, as myself and brother, great chaps who started it, was we wanted to understand more about how properties behave. And we didn't want to capture the transactional market. We wanted to capture the kind of behavioral market, you know, understanding how much properties cost to run you know, what levels of service provision people are, you know, are wanting for their properties. Where are the most pain points within the service providers for properties? You know, where's the least level of transparency? And ultimately, how could we fill those gaps? And so there was a, there's a slight environmental element to that, you know, understanding utilities use and pain points along the utilities journey and contracting for utilities. But really, we it is incredibly painful. There's loads of people out there over the last 10, 15 years who've tried to make that. Which is very painful. Um, <laughs> less painful. And yeah, they, they sort of do move it forward, but it still is. And sometimes, you know, I think what we're trying to do is bring some transparency into property so that, you know, when you moved into a property, whether you're renting or buying, you could see what the bills had been for the last five years. And then we would benchmark that against 
all of the other data we had for that particular property type in that particular area. So you could understand whether you actually, you know, the bills are going to cost you about the same amount as how much they should cost. Are they going to cost you more than the, the average or are they going to cost you less than the average? And that's what we, you know, we felt that would be a really kind of useful tool. And the challenge with that was with any data set is that you need quite a time series to do it before it becomes useful. So you need to make sure you exist for long enough. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've done that well. That's but, um, yeah, 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 survived, which is good. But yeah, so I think, you know, that's certainly understanding. And that comes back to, again, I talk about it a lot about customer behavior. But, you know, that comes back to ultimately understanding pain points and customer behaviors and where opportunities are in that sort of sphere. Because I think that's the bit we just don't have enough clarity on and enough transparency on is how really people really behave when it comes to property. Because, you know, again, from my world, a lot of it, you know, and the institutional real estate world has traditionally been B2B, you know, it's business to business. You're dealing with people who, who are unemotive, but actually in the world I'm now in, you know, the operational capital markets, we'll call it, it's B2C. You know, you have to understand your customer. You have to understand people's behavior. And it's not often very linear. It's quite emotive. And also a great example is student accommodation where your tenant is the student, but the decision maker is the parent. You know, similarly in some senior housing, you know, you're the person who lives with you may be the person in their sort of later life, but actually the decision might have been made by the kids. You've often got some kind of invisible customers who they don't live with you, but they're the ones pulling the strings financially. And that's important to understand as well, because, you know, essentially you're having to market to two types of customer who have two very different sets of values. And that's really important for us to try and sort of, you know, understand it's multi-layered. It's a challenge and it's always moving forward. So stop me if I'm being too nosy. We talked a bit about what you would invest in if you were an institutional investor. But how have you actually allocated your own investment capital over the last couple of years with the benefit of your professional experience? I love this question when you, you told me you were going to ask me this. Uh, because <laughs> I think it was actually a bit longer. I think I said I love speaking to sector experts like yourselves, hearing how they actually yeah. invest in themselves because so much of the time, well, it's just super interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose if I look at my portfolio, let's call it, which is very limited compared to some people because I'm at the front end of a heinous mortgage and with a young family. So any kind of spare cash for investments is long been gone. But I kind of bucket it in different ways. I'm probably quite risk averse and I mainly because I'm not an active investor in other things. I'm quite focused on the day job. So I think, you know, you kind of want your capital to be able to work for you over the long term. So, you know, I think things like stocks and shares, ISAs are great and have been over the last year or so if you've kind of been able to follow the markets and what's going on there. In terms of property, I actually have some of my portfolio in uh, with a group called Lend Invest, who are great guys. Um, I know them from the chaps who founded that firm and, and run that firm from university. And I think that it's a great model and I understand it. I would never invest significant amounts of things in things that I don't understand. That's my main rule. And if I'm trying to understand it, then I'll, uh, I'll only invest a little bit. I obviously did, um, you know, startups. I've invested, I've got a portfolio of, you know, casters in there and a couple of other startups. You know, a friend of mine started a business doing vertical farms a couple of, uh, about a year or so ago. It's very small investment. I like, in that. by the way, the fact that you said I'm really risk averse. I've invested in startups. But okay. Yeah. 
And it's only if you look at the percentage of the portfolio, it's still relatively small. And I suppose the the most interesting one was, and they've done this, and this is completely against what I'm a complete hypocrite. Uh, but I really wanted to learn about e-gaming, virtual gaming. So I invested in a an e-gaming team, well, a portfolio of teams, actually, just because I thought, well, if I'm exposed to it, then I'm going to be forced to learn about it. And it's kind of an esports industry. So people who, you know, who running sort of shadow Formula One leagues and FIFA leagues and all sorts of things, which I have no idea about. But I just thought I could just see the business model just seemed to make so much sense to me. Um, and how they... How's it done? How's it performed? Well, ask me in five years' time. They said they 10 x my money in five years. So let's see. I'll be able to buy a holiday. Uh, in, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't put the house on it, but um, I'll get a nice holiday out of it if it does work. So, yeah, let's see. But it seems, you know, the pandemic certainly helped esports take off. So I've been relatively pleased with the trajectory of that market. But I think, you know, that all of these things are kind of tech enabled. Yeah, Lend Invest is a great business, which is, you know, it's tech enabled. It's bringing transparency to the lending market and delivering people You've got to understand what it is and the relative risks. But, you know, again, it's bringing sort of that transparency to the lending markets, which, you know, I, what I like about that and what I like about real estate is you don't just have to be an equity investor. You can be a debt investor as well. You know, and we see that all the way up from, you know, small capital to large capital. You know, it's where do you feel most comfortable on the capital stack? And so I quite like the idea of being a debt investor rather than an equity investor. <laughs> so that's the route I've sort of gone in the property world, which I quite like. I'm fascinated by all those investments, especially when you said that you were A, low risk, and obviously your expertise is in property. But um, they all sound very exciting. So good for you. Fantastic. And if listeners want to find out more about what you do or Colliers or what you do there, or just to get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, Probably LinkedIn is probably the best. Yeah, just Paddy Allen, A-O-O-E-N on there. That's probably the best way to do it. I try and be as responsive as I can. Yeah, most anyone who's in my network on LinkedIn, will, they're probably moaning about the various levels of spam that I put out there. So, so yeah, it's probably the best way to do it. Fantastic. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate no, your pleasure. time. Absolutely pleasure. Thank you very Just me. in time for your next meeting. <laughs> yeah, and, thank uh, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Anne. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.